News. From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Dan Ravid, columnist for Newsday, and Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Affairs Correspondent. Welcome, Dan and Chris. Hey, real pleasure to be with you, Kim. Nice to be with you as well, Kim. Well, here are the issues. Talks at the U.N. Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, included President Joe Biden announcing a sweeping plan to reduce methane gas emissions. Biden's commitment was part of a flurry of deals announced by over 100 nations intended to avert catastrophic global warming. But experts noted such promises have been made and broken before. After months of tense talks, delayed votes, and internal clashes, Democratic leaders are on the cusp of solidifying a deal on President Biden's sweeping domestic agenda, setting the stage for the House to vote on both a bipartisan infrastructure bill and a larger social benefits package. In Virginia's gubernatorial race, Republican Glenn Youngkin, a businessman and first-time candidate for office, defeated Terry McAuliffe, a past governor and fixture of Democratic politics for decades. It was the first Republican statewide victory since 2009. New Jersey Democratic Governor Phil Murphy clinched a second term after defeating former state assemblyman Jack Cittarelli, a Republican, in the state's unexpectedly tight gubernatorial contest. And voters in Minneapolis, Minnesota, rejected what would have been an unprecedented move to dismantle the police department after calls for reform following the death of George Floyd. Some 28 million American children between the ages of 5 to 11 years old are now eligible to receive Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. Well, gentlemen, those are the issues. Let's get started. Dan, a flurry of deals were made this week at the climate conference with some 100 nations pledging to cut methane emissions. And critics say these pledges to reduce emissions have been made in the past. So how serious are world leaders on global warming? I found it impressive that the focus changed to methane. Usually we're talking about carbon and whether the countries of the world would agree on ways to reduce carbon emissions with a definite goal of limiting the rise in the average temperature around the world, right? We've heard of the goal that temperatures should not rise more than one and a half degrees Celsius. Other Country leaders have said, well, if we're lucky, we can limit it maybe to two degrees Celsius in the coming years. But there's no definite plan for doing that. That seems just too tough. Too many agreements would be required to actually reduce industrial production, to change agriculture, what gets planted. So I would say that this very important conference in Glasgow, Scotland, did not succeed in the carbon goals. But then we had this new focus on methane. Methane isn't as common as carbon, but it can, according to the scientists, cause a lot of heating of the atmosphere, a lot of warming. Methane largely comes, again, from the energy industry. And President Joe Biden decided to focus on this pledge to reduce methane emissions, saying that would really make a difference. And other countries are signing on to a voluntary pledge to reduce methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. 
That's a pretty quick change. And here in the United States, the Environmental Protection Administration is rolling out new regulations to reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. So at least, you know, something happened at Glasgow that actually could make a difference. Yes, and Chris, President Biden rebuked China and Russia for not attending the conference. And while there, he met with his G7 counterparts to talk through a climate-friendly international infrastructure initiative that he calls Build Back Better World. He told leaders investments in the environment would create new jobs around the world and to offer an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which has been criticized for benefiting Chinese businesses while leaving local governments deeply in debt. So will investors see this as a true alternative to China's initiative? It remains to be seen. I think one of the big disappointments of the conference was that the leaders of China and India and Brazil were no-shows. And that's unfortunate because those three countries produce more than half of the greenhouse gases the world has. And I think it was important for them to be at the conference and show their will to trying to take measures to control climate change. China right now is in the midst of ramping up its coal production because the country cannot produce enough electricity otherwise. And that's been a big problem in China is the amount of coal production and coal producing plants that they have. And they're going to need to step up and do more and make more commitments to try to get other leaders behind them and, and them being an example of what a country can do. But it was a disappointment that these world leaders didn't show up. Chris, I thought Kim raised a really good issue when she was contrasting what the American president, Joe Biden, was trying to emphasize now, almost an international global version of his Build Back Better, which is a set of plans here in the United States that, frankly, the American Congress hasn't yet passed. And now President Biden is trying to find a way to make the world interested in that phrase, but also in the notion that after the COVID pandemic, one hopes it's going to end, obviously, in the coming year, who knows, but you then have to plan how you build back. Do you still have a lot of industry that pollutes the atmosphere or not? And the United States is suggesting that it can be in the lead in many technologies and also in ideas like having a minimum tax on corporations around the world. In Rome, at the Group of 20, there was an agreement to have a minimum tax, 15% tax on the profits of any corporations. That felt like a win for the United States, even though some American corporations don't care for it, of course. And maybe a win for Joe Biden, as opposed to China, which has been approaching developing countries all around the world, investing in natural resources, taking over a lot of resources, it seems. And I think the United States is looking for a subtle but effective way of fighting back against the growth of Chinese influence. These are some really good points that leads right into my next question on President Biden's message on climate change. It came as Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said he wouldn't support Biden's plan of $1.75 trillion on the social agenda without ample time to consider its economic and fiscal ramifications. So then how will Democrats get this bill passed? I'll throw that out to both of you. Well, if I may, I'll just start with a brief remark about Senator Joe Manchin. Our uh, listeners around the world should know that he is a Democrat, a member of President Biden's party. But Joe Manchin is different. Frankly, there are two Democrats among the 50 in the U.S. Senate. 
The Senate is 50-50 Democrats, Republicans. But there are two Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, she's from Arizona, who don't, well, who don't think the same as the other Democrats. They are definitely more conservative in their thinking. They're more pro-business. They speak against spending too much money on social services. And so I would have to say it's quite unclear as we speak now whether President Biden can get his package through when he can't even depend on the 50 Democrats in the Senate. And frankly, in the House of Representatives, the Democrats have a very slim majority also. And I would say that there's still a lot of mistrust going on. I mean, they're close to reaching a deal, but progressive Democrats in the House of Representatives appear not to trust these two senators, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin. And so they are reluctant to vote on just one measure. They want to vote on these two measures together because they think if they vote on one measure, which is the infrastructure, $1 trillion infrastructure measure, that Cinema and Manchin will go back on their word and not support the Build Back Better initiative that is also pending in Congress. So it remains to be seen if they can, you know, work this out. But uh, it looks like the progressive Democrats are trying to hold firm that they want these two bills in tandem. Meanwhile, the Republicans are united in voting against any idea from the Biden administration. Now, that could be out of a sincere analysis that it involves spending too much money. Some Republicans are saying that as the American economy comes out of the COVID-19 pandemic, that there is not a need for so much government stimulus that the economy is waking up anyway. But frankly, I don't think it has anything to do with sincere analysis. Right now, Republicans just don't want to help President Biden in any way look like a success because the Republicans believe that they can come back into power in the congressional elections that are now one year away. And of course, the presidential election in 2024, when we'll see uh, who will be the Republican candidate and will Joe Biden run for re-election as a Democrat. And Republicans are strongly opposed to the tax increases that they see coming down the pike in order to pay for these spending measures. They think that it could be one of the most historic tax increases in U.S. history. So it remains to be seen how the administration is going to structure paying for these measures. But right now, Republicans are not in line and they see taxes as a red flag and they don't want tax increases to pay for these measures. Also with this going on, some very interesting elections occurred this week. Republican Glenn Youngkin, a businessman and first-time candidate for office, defeated Terry McAuliffe, a past governor and stronghold in the Democratic Party. So is this loss for Democrats an indication that the Democratic Party is out of touch with what's important to Americans, Dan? Oh, a lot of Democrats think that. They look at the result in Virginia, where not only did Democrats lose the governor's mansion in that state, but also the state legislature went to Republicans, and Republicans won other important posts. But not only in Virginia, in other parts of the country as well, Republicans are feeling strong, which of course means Democrats are scratching their heads and saying what went wrong. Now, first, there is the phenomenon that just after a Democrat wins the White House, becomes president, local elections around the country tend to go the other way 
for a year or two. Voters apparently either changed their minds or opinion polls suggest that voters are not impressed with how Joe Biden's administration has done. Not much has gotten done. Joe Biden's approval rating for how is he performing as president is about 43 percent. That is low. Democrats are concerned. And they think that in Virginia, there was an assumption by the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, that he could just breeze into an election victory just by being a solid, old-fashioned Democrat. But he stumbled because a lot of people in Virginia were concerned about how the schools are run, whether their kids can go to school as the pandemic is still with us. And at one point, McAuliffe said he doesn't think that parents should control what is taught at schools. McAuliffe apparently believes that educational professionals should. And that turned into a debate about racial divisions and whether the history of how black Americans have been treated should feature in the public schools. Democrats generally say, yes, it's part of history. And Republicans think there's been too much of that. And that became a big issue. So we have Glenn Youngkin elected governor of Virginia, a real win for the Republicans, because at least on this one, the Republicans got the issues right. Also, I wanted to mention Youngkin's running mate. History was actually made as well this week when Winsome Sears, a Marine Corps veteran, claimed victory in her race to become the first woman and African-American to be elected Virginia's lieutenant governor. So all eyes will also be on her as she enters a more high-profile political position. Your thoughts on that? I think it's a milestone for Virginia to have a black American in the lieutenant governor's position. And also, uh, Virginia elected its first Latino as attorney general. So the top leadership of Virginia is diverse at this time. And it'll be interesting to see how they work with the legislature to get things done. But I think there's a lot of soul searching going on among Democrats that they've got to do more to address the quality of life issues that Republican voters turned out to support. You know, those are issues that are key to everybody, jobs, education, and the Democrats have to come up with a better message because what was the key, I think, in the election was that the Republicans were excited and came out in full force to vote. And the Democrats didn't turn out in the big numbers like they did during the presidential election, and that hurt in Virginia's race. And noting some other history and the results of the election this past Tuesday, again, involving people of color, Eric Adams. He was elected mayor of New York City, only the second African-American mayor of America's largest city. How about Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Ed Ganey, the first black mayor ever of Pittsburgh. In Boston, first time that, as we put it in this country, a person of color is elected the mayor of Boston, Massachusetts, also the first female mayor elected there, Michelle Wu. She's of Chinese background. She's the daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant family. And so one shouldn't think that America is a racist country. People who are qualified, who run good campaigns, they can do quite well. Cincinnati, Ohio, by the way, also its first Asian-American mayor, Aftab Purival, he's from a family that finds its origins in India and Tibet. So America still is the land of opportunity, but in U.S. politics, you have to run a really good campaign. Just to also mention, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy beat back Republican challenger Jack Cittarelli in a race that polls had shown slightly narrowed 
In the final weeks of the campaign, the former state lawmaker ran far ahead of expectations, holding a lead over Murphy for much of Tuesday night before falling slightly behind in the early morning hours on Wednesday. So I just wanted to mention that. Any comments on this race? Well, it was one of those places where uh, the Democrats were really worried late Tuesday night and Wednesday until the very close result came out. In other words, a Republican almost won, and that was also scary, to be frank, for the Democratic Party. Some of the issues that played big in that race, the Republican was able to charge that the state has some of the highest taxes in the country and also capitalized on other polarizing issues regarding mass mandates and whether or not schools should teach about systematic racism and trying to capitalize on the so-called COVID fatigue and everybody's unhappiness that we are not further along and getting our lives back back to normal and crushing down this pandemic. And then there is the issue of voter fatigue. And I think, again, a lot of Democrats didn't turn out in the state. If they had in bigger numbers, Mr. Murphy should have won by a lot more. Here's a question that our listeners really around the world should think about. With the presidential election in the year 2024 and the possibility that Donald Trump will want to be the Republican Party candidate and come back into office. He's been very active, giving speeches, sending out messages, appearing on conservative media. You look at what happened in the election this past Tuesday, and you wonder if the Democrats can really stand together, stand firmly, and have a high turnout in 2024, because otherwise Donald Trump could be president again. Some really good food for thought, and we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Minneapolis voters reject a measure to replace the police department. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Dan Revive, columnist for Newsday, and Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Affairs Correspondent. Well, Chris, voters in Minneapolis have resoundingly rejected a proposal to reinvent policing in their city 17 months after the killing of George Floyd by police sparked massive protests and calls for change. Nationally, the vote was seen as a test of the political movement to defund traditional policing as it ran up against concerns about rising violent crime. So what motivated voters to reject this proposal? Well, I think it was what you just said. It was the rise in crime. And in Minneapolis, and like many other cities across the country, we are in the midst of a rise in violent crime. And calls to shift resources away from police departments just seem to collide at a time when homicides in the United States are up 30 percent from 2019 to 2020. So people did not feel comfortable about replacing the police department with the Department of Public Safety. And I think the organizers and the advocates of this referendum did not do a real good job explaining how, in fact, they would build this Department of Public Safety. And they were talking about a reduction of police officers and instead hiring mental health and crime prevention 
counselors to respond to calls that police might not need to respond to. People dealing with mental health situations or some kind of domestic dispute situations, they were going to employ social workers and counselors to respond to those calls. But you have a very, very troubled police department, and I think everybody in the city and around the country knows that there are problems there, but this puts a spotlight on efforts to reform that department in some meaningful way. It's also a national issue, of course, Chris, because many cities, large and small, have been looking for an answer to this to modify the behavior of police. In Philadelphia, there's now been an order to the police department not to do traffic stops, meaning a police car shouldn't pursue some car that was driving a little bit erratically or its taillight isn't working or something like that. And apparently the police chief in Philadelphia thinks that what you want to do is eliminate some of these encounters that especially if it's between the white officers and African-American motorists, you know, lead to misunderstandings and perhaps even violence. But a lot of people all across America think that's not a final answer, that the police actually should be told, you know, not to enforce the law. Is there a way to improve relations between the police and minority communities? It's still an open issue. Minneapolis, where uh, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer one and a half years ago, suggested one solution to abolish the police force and replace it. That's been turned down now. So all over the country, there will be a search for some other solutions. But I think the important point to think about is that you can reform these police departments and drive down crime at the same time. And I think there has to be a combination of measures that police departments around the country look at to try to establish that. Because what we don't want to see is what we've seen over and over again are these videos of police using excessive force, sometimes deadly force, in the case of George Floyd. But after George Floyd's murder, were 23 other major cities, including Washington, D.C., reducing the budgets of their police department. Now, as crime has gone up, even in Minneapolis and here in Washington, D.C., city leaders are asking for more money in the budgets to hire more police officers. Really good points being made. I wish we could talk more on the subject, but I want to get in our last topic very quickly. U.S. health officials gave the final sign-off to Pfizer's kid-sized COVID-19 shot, a milestone that opens a major expansion of the nation's vaccination campaign to children as young as five. So, Dan, how are parents responding to this kid-sized vaccine? Well, national opinion polls suggest that about three out of every 10 parents say that they will have their child between the ages of 5 and 11 vaccinated right away, but nearly three out of 10 say they don't want to do it at all. They don't trust the vaccine. They're afraid what the result might be, that maybe in the future it would affect the child's development and that it's not been tested enough. Obviously, we've only had COVID-19 for less than two years, and these vaccines are new, so some parents are still afraid of it. And yet federal health officials are saying that this is a key step in preventing the spread of COVID-19 and really getting the numbers down. A series of two shots, the vaccine manufactured by Pfizer, this dose is one third the adult dose. Federal authorities assure us that it's been well tested and that it's going to be safe. But some parents do have their doubts. Chris, your take on this. 
Well, it was nice to see a lot of activity right up the street from where I live at the Children's National Medical Center, one of the premier children's hospitals in the country, where kids were already lining up to get their shots. And the local counties here in the Washington, D.C. area are already rolling out vaccination locations for the young children to get their vaccine. And I think that's a good sign. We still have a big problem, especially in the African American community with vaccine hesitancy. We heard from a lot of parents that they want to wait and see how this vaccine works out in young kids. But I think it's a good start to roll this out. President Biden and the administration wants to do is try to get as many of these kids vaccinated because I think what's important here is that these kids are vaccinated and we see less cases of COVID in young people. And we want to continue the in-person education that we so sorely missed last year. Well said, both of you. We're going to have to end the show on that note. My thanks go to our panelists, Dan Rabib, columnist for Newsday, and Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Affairs Correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 